0: Okay, please remain standing and turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, where the Lord Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. That brings us now to our sermon text in Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame... And gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it sh- shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship. For the daughter of Jerusalem, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you. From the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth, to the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. You may be seated. In the year 1630, a fleet uh, carrying more than 700 people sailed From England, with the goal of uh, populating a newly established colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony in New England, this colony was led by English Puritans. And uh, their governor's name was John Winthrop. And he gave a famous address to those colonists at the the time uh, where he described that New England colony that they were going to settle as A city upon a hill. A city upon a hill. So from Winthrop's point of view, these people had a a unique opportunity to build from the ground up a new kind of community, a distinctly Christian, Protestant, and Puritan community, which was something that had never really been done before. Um, And uh, this new uh, colonization of America gave a unique opportunity to, to give it a try. And so it felt... To, to Winthrop and and others, that, that these settlers were in something like the position of Israel in the Promised Land. It's kind of how uh, the, the kind of uh, rhetoric he used in describing what they were going to do. He saw them as being in covenant with God with this special calling, very similar opportunities, very similar spiritual pitfalls that faced uh, Israel in that Old Testament context. And it's interesting... Later in American history, especially in the second half of the 20th century, many American presidents have picked up on uh, that speech of Winthrop's and sort of run with it, starting with John F. Kennedy. Uh, Reagan's famous for it, but Kennedy used it as well, and many others. It's come up president after president, political speech after political speech, until it's almost become kind of like a trope um, in in American political speeches. And arguably... um, That use of the city on a hill image in American politics has has really stretched that language pretty far beyond what Winthrop had in mind when he used it in 1630. Uh, We could talk about that. But even setting that to one side and just going with what what Winthrop was talking about, we really have to question whether Puritan New England itself, uh, at least with the benefit of hindsight, whether they... Really, whether that colony really um, <coughs> lived up to that lofty imagery. It's a, it's a complicated history there. Um, but for all, all of those pieces that we could talk a lot more about another time when we are able to, to deal with the history, uh, here's what I'm going to recognize this morning. Even as we critique that rhetoric, even as we may question the way that rhetoric is still used today, Uh, in American culture and politics, we do need to recognize this from the word of God. That God's word does instill in God's people a longing for a city on a hill. And a longing to be a part of it. The question is, what exactly is that city? How exactly is God building that city and what exactly does it look like to be a part of that city on a hill? If we go not by the terms that American history has kind of layered on top of that phrase, but if we look at the Word of God itself, what is it teaching us about this city on a hill? What does it look like what does it look like to be a part of that city, especially as we're living in the midst of a world that is quite hostile to, the city of God. So let's look then at this uh, fourth chapter of Micah in three parts today. First is going to be a promise of peace, verses 1 through 5. Second, a remnant restored, verses 6 to 8. And then third, the current conflict, verses 9 to 13. So a promise of peace, a remnant restored, and the current conflict. All right, so when Micah says it shall come to pass in the latter days, it's important to review here something about what we might call the the eschatology of the Old Testament. And when you think about the word eschatology, the first thing that comes to mind is probably the the very end of history, the return of Christ. But eschatology is uh, really much broader than that. Eschatology in general, is the study of last things, right? And when the Old Testament prophets talked about last things or the latter days, you see the phrase here, they often didn't have in mind in the, that context so much the, the end of history altogether as they had in mind sort of a new beginning, the end of one age of the world and the beginning of, of, what do I call it, The age to come. And this is why in the New Testament, the apostles look back at the prophets and, and they say, "Well, what the prophets spoke of as the last days. Well, that's what we're living in now. That's what we're living in now that Christ has come, now that Christ has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church. Now we are living in the last days, the latter days. Don't let the false church of Mormonism, lay claim to that title of being the latter-day saints. That's what it means to be part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are these latter-day holy ones of the Lord Jesus that Micah is talking about. Okay. So Micah chapter 4 then, along with very very similar parallel passage you can find in Isaiah 2. Um, this is a very important text for understanding, for learning about the, the eschatology of, of the Old Testament prophets. So we want to look carefully here. What is Micah looking forward to in this future, this final future, this coming age that he describes as the latter days? Well, the first thing is an elevation, an elevation of the spiritual center of Israel to this prominence, unprecedented prominence and dignity and visibility and security, all that's represented when he says the mountain of the house of the Lord, it's the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, is what he's picturing here, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So Jerusalem um, itself, the physical city of Jerusalem, sits on a mountain, right, Mount Zion, and Mount Zion or the, the the Temple Mount is it's high compared with the surrounding landscape. But the mountain that Jerusalem is built on is is not the tallest mountain in Israel by any stretch. It's not even close. Um, And so, as Micah speaks symbolically here, and that's important to understand, he's speaking symbolically, he's asking you to to imagine what would it be like if Jerusalem, that that hill that Jerusalem is built on, suddenly grew by like a thousand feet in altitude. What if that mountain just expanded and was a thousand feet higher? Lifting Jerusalem high above the rest of the land, so that now it would be unmistakable that this is a special place that God has exalted. What a contrast that is to the symbolism at the end of chapter three. Okay, so chapter three ends how? It ends with Jerusalem pictured as a heap of ruins, plowed as a field, the mountain of the house now a wooded height. In other words, everything has been torn down and flattened on the top. Of Mount Zion. It is the opposite now occurring in chapter 4. And that flattening of Mount Zion is is what's going to happen in the near future when Babylon uh, destroys Jerusalem. But Micah is saying there's a more distant future that you also need to know about, where that spiritual center of the land is going to be elevated. There's going to be something new, something higher. There's going to be an advancement on anything that has come before. Not just a restoration, but an advancement, an elevation. And along with that elevation comes an expansion. An expansion of access to this elevated city, to the whole world, to the nations. It says, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And so what you see is happening here is as this spiritual center, uh, Jerusalem, is elevated, the salvation that's found there does not become more exclusive. It's not this fortress mentality, um, keeping the nations out. It's expanding its reach to include the nations to welcome them in. And why is that? Well, that's because of the, a third dimension. So the expansion of access to the elevation of the city is going to come about how? It's going to come out through the proclamation of God's word. The proclamation of God's word from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then finally, there's a fourth dimension in verse 3. So there's elevation, expansion, proclamation, and now a cessation. A cessation of hostilities. It's peace. It's a promise of peace. This real, just, lasting peace among the nations and between the nations and God's people. And why is that? Well, it's because God is reigning in perfect justice over them all. And I love this imagery you understand what's going on here is these tools of warfare are being repurposed. They're being hammered and bent and remade into farming equipment. That's what this means when it says the swords are beaten into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. Okay. This is what it's like to live under the reign of the Lord. It's like imagine taking a tank and using it as a tractor. to grow the food in your garden. Um, the imagery reminds me of a famous sculpture outside the United Nations headquarters, the knotted gun. that's you know, where the barrel is kind of twisted in a knot. Um, representing that longing for world peace that humanity pays a lot of lip service to, but of course has never been able to achieve. Why? Well, I think it has to do with teaching of verse 5, which is that all of the nations for now still walk, each in the name of their own gods. Um, now, as we come to verse 5, we think, wait a second, he was talking about the final future, now he seems to be talking about the present. Um, one, of, one of you was uh, recently showing me some exercises that you had to do for uh, visual therapy, kind of like physical therapy, but for your eyes, where you had to focus on something far away and then something close up, kind of like I'm looking at the back wall and now I'm looking at my pointer finger and I'm looking at the back wall again and now I'm looking at my finger and things go in and out of focus as you look far away and then close up. And I think Micah is doing something very much like that in this chapter, going back and forth between the final future, the distant future, and the near present and relating them to one another saying, this is what's coming in the final future, this elevation and proclamation and expansion and cessation. That's coming, but now I'm going to bring you back to the present. This is what the world looks like today, the nations walking in the name of their own gods. And it's like Micah is inviting us to think, if that's the final future that's coming, then how do we live now when things are not like that yet? And the answer in verse 5 is, well, let's live now, Israel, in the mode of that final future. Let's let that final future begin for us now in the present. Even though the world is not yet bought into it, even though the nations haven't yet come streaming into it, they're still walking in the name of their own gods. But what about us? As for me and my house, like Joshua said, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. Forever and ever. This final future has begun already in the hearts of God's people. And we're going to live now under the reign of that king whose universal reign over all things will one day be revealed. But now it is bursting into reality in our hearts and in this community, however small. Now in verse uh, 6, There's a change in perspective where Micah has brought us back to the present day. Again, he's reminded us that Zion hasn't yet been restored, that those uh, things about the final future haven't yet taken place. And he's living now in a time in Israel where many things are uh, very much broken down. Micah's just finished in the previous chapters railing against Israel's leadership for their quite high-handed sins against God, against their fellow Israelites. And he's told them, look, judgment is coming. And if judgment is coming, if judgment is coming, how are we ever going to get to these latter days? How are we ever going to get to that final future? How do we get there from here? And as though to answer that very question, the Lord next gives us this wonderful insight into the how. How he intends to accomplish those grand purposes. And it's not going to be by very grand means, is it? Rather, the opposite. That's the point of verses 6 to 8. It's going to be the lame. It's going to be those who have been driven away. It's going to be those whom the Lord himself, he says, has afflicted. But what is the Lord going to do? He's going to gather them. He's going he's to take those who were cast off and he's going to make them a strong nation. And they're going to be strong. Why? Well, they're going to be strong because the Lord is reigning over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And this is the second point, a remnant restored. This is a big theme throughout the prophets, that yes, judgment is coming on the nation as a whole. The bulk of Israel's population is going to be killed or carried off in exile. The covenant tree, as Isaiah puts it, is going to be cut down, down to a stump. But that, God insists, is not going to be the end of Israel and it's not going to be the end of the covenant because there is going to be yet life in that stump. And the remnant is going to be this small, weak, insignificant-looking group of people that God, by his sovereign grace and power, is going to preserve and revive and regather into this core of this new community. And he's going to take that kind of helpless and nothing looking uh, group of cast offs and he's going to make them a strong nation. He says, strong not because they are strong, but because he is strong, because their king is strong. Now, uh, In verse 8, he pictures Jerusalem in yet another way, as he, the tower of the flock. Um, Leslie Allen, his commentator, suggests that this is referring to a, a watchtower for for keeping for watching sheep, where a shepherd would go to look up at the flock from a higher vantage point. Very isolated kind of structure out in the middle of sheepfolds. Um, very nondescript. That's what Jerusalem is going to be reduced to. It's going to be nothing but a Uh, watchtower for sheep, and yet that's not how Israel is going to stay. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So uh, when Israel goes into exile in Babylon, they're not going to have a king anymore. The last king of David's line is going to be removed from the throne. But the Lord is promising here a day when that royal office is going to be restored. It's going to be revived. Um, except that it's not going to look like you might expect because it's not going to come about through power, powerful and impressive means. God is going to use the lame, the outcast, and the afflicted to bring this about. Okay, now remember, we're talking about that back and forth between the distant and the near focus. Um, and so in verse 9, we're back in the present again. He's taking us out to when the, the kingship is restored. And now we're back in the present in verse 9, as he says, is there no king in you? What Micah's doing is he's, he's repeatedly drawing their attention to the future so that they'll think about the present, what we're calling the current conflict that they're in, in light of what's coming later. And so in verse 8, um, God's going to restore the kingship, but now verse 9 why do you cry aloud, is there no king in you? And then verse 10, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Um, so here, this is a little bit a little bit future, uh, a few decades past Micah's own time. Um, remember, Judah is going to be rescued from the Assyrians under Hezekiah. But even under Hezekiah, remember Hezekiah invites the envoys from Babylon to come and look at all of his treasure. And he, At the time, he doesn't see Babylon as a threat, and, and he's warned, no, it's Israel's, It's actually going to be the Babylonians who end up destroying Jerusalem. Um, and so Micah is anticipating, oh, yes, the exile is coming. That plowing of Zion, Jerusalem becoming a heap of ruins, yes, that is going to happen. But what he's reassuring... Anybody who's listening, anybody who's paying attention to the word of God, Micah's reassuring them that even then, even in the exile, the Lord is still going to be at work. He's still, in the midst of that, going to be keeping his end of the covenant. And he's going to, even then, he's going to rescue and redeem you from the hand of your enemies, even there in exile. And so the question is then, again, how should that change the way that you think about the present crisis? As you think about that Assyrian army marching through Judah and laying siege to Jerusalem. We've come back to this time after time. Remember that army of Sennacherib surrounding Jerusalem. Seems like uh, Judah, Jerusalem is toast that this is the end for Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. And Micah is reminding them here, look, I've given you this insight into the future. The near future and the final future to teach you something about the present. That right now, you listen to me and I'm going to take care of you in the present. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled, let our eyes gaze upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. See, what they think was their idea to gather around and gang up on Jerusalem Actually, it actually wasn't their idea at all. The Lord has gathered them so that he might defeat them. I, I once read a funny thing that said the next time you're in a crowded elevator and everybody's kind of standing around awkwardly trying not to make eye contact with each other, everybody's strangers, you should just speak up quietly and say, you're probably wondering why I've gathered you all here today. <laughs> and just to see what everybody does. Except that here it's for real. Here it's, it is the Lord who has gathered all of these enemies together and they have no idea that they have been gathered by God so that he can defeat them all at once. It's it's the same thing that's happening at the Battle of Armageddon at the end of Revelation. It's God who has gathered them together there in what Joel calls the Valley of Decision so that he can demonstrate his power and his plan that he has gathered them as, as sheaves to the threshing floor and said, all right, Israel, now you go and thresh them. Okay, now we, we look back on all this and we might ask the question, <clears throat> what does all this have to do with us? We're not, we're not living in Jerusalem under siege by Sennacherib's army. Um, we're living all these centuries later after the coming of Jesus. Okay, so how do we think about this? I think Micah 4 is very significant for our present, for our current conflict that we find ourselves living in. Because of the way, in this chapter, we find pictured for us both the what and the how of God's city on a hill. As I said earlier, the apostles are are quick to point out that we are, in fact, living now in the last days. And by that, I don't mean... Um, that we know for sure that Jesus is coming any second or next week or next month or something like that. Uh, it's, it's not what we, people often talk about, or are we living in the end times. The answer has always been yes to that question from the time the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. God's people have always been living in the latter days, in the, that, that end of, that last stage of history. That's, that's what the church has always been living in with the return of Christ as the next big step in the history of God's salvation. We are living in these last days of Micah. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. That city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's what it means to be one of his disciples. And that's not because you're Americans. Um, So try, if you can, to disassociate those ideas in your mind. They've kind of crowded on top of this imagery from the Bible. It's because you're Christians. It's because you're members of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. That's what makes you part of this city on a hill. It gives you both the privilege and the responsibility, the duty of being part of that city. And in him, in Christ, of course, what has happened? Well, just what Micah describes here, that door of salvation, the door into the covenant has been thrown wide open to the Gentiles, that expansion And we shouldn't forget, too, that that's you and me. Don't think of yourself on the hill with the nation streaming to you. Remember, you're part of that crowd of the nations streaming to this city on the hill, streaming into Christ. We are in that crowd, gathering from all of the earth to him. In fact, Micah 4, verse 2, is being fulfilled at this very moment as we as a congregation of the Lord Jesus, are flowing, we could say, to the heavenly Jerusalem together. That spiritual center of the kingdom of God, the heavenly places where Christ is, Mount Zion, which is what Hebrews calls those heavenly places, the spiritual Mount Zion that has been indeed elevated in the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. That's where we lift up our hearts when we're in corporate worship together. That's where we are spiritually right now. We've got to learn to see that by the eyes of faith. We are part of that elevation and expansion and proclamation of the kingdom of God. And there's no doubt we're still living in a world where there's still violence, where there's still warfare, just like Jesus said that there would be in between his first and second comings, those wars and rumors of wars. And that that perfect peace that Micah pictures here is definitely part of the not yet of Christ's kingdom. But it's also part of the, we call the already, as, as Christ, Christ, has, Christ has purchased for us already, peace with God and the way to peace with one another as well because the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Christ, is peace, right? It's peace. And so that means that one of the duties of being part of this city on a hill is that we're to be taking the lead as God's people in peacemaking in our relationships with each other with, outside, with those outside. We are to be embodying in our relationships, in our dispositions towards one another, in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, we're to be embodying this, this um, beating, this repurposing of swords and spears into tools for construction and cultivation instead of destruction and death. It's what it's like to be a peacemaker following in the steps of the great peacemaker Christ, the Prince of Peace. And yes, even though the nations are walking each in the name of their own gods, we see it all around us, including our own nation, the United States has its own set of gods that we are always being called to bow down to. But we, members of this city on a hill, we are walking in the name of the Lord our God. That's our calling. Like Israel, we are to be living now We're to be living now in light of then, in light of that future that God has told us about. We are to be, in fact, living out parts of that great future, even in this present in between. And let's not forget that even as Micah gives us that glorious what of the city on a hill, he also gives us the how. I think to keep us humble... It's a pretty glorious, heady thing to imagine yourself a part of. A city on a hill, oh yes, such amazing people. Everyone should flow to us and think how great we are to keep us from thinking anything remotely like that. To keep us from thinking that the power comes from us, that we're so special, Micah reminds us, no, we're, we're the lame. We're lame. We're those driven away. We're those cast off. We're the remnant. And we're only here because God, in his sovereign grace and power, has gathered us here. We haven't assembled ourselves to come and greet him and approach him in worship. He has gathered us by his almighty power. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the strong, and that's us, the weak ones. And after all, I mean, we follow, don't we, a crucified Savior? We follow a man of sorrows, a stricken, smitten, and afflicted king. A king who, whose mission was to die to build this kingdom and to include us in it. But that king that we follow is not just a crucified king. He's a risen and reigning king. And so in the midst of our current conflict, on this side of glory, no doubt, not there yet, and the enemies are many and strong and fierce, Micah is teaching us to have confidence, not in ourselves, but in him, in that king who has already won the victory and it's making us part of his his city on a hill let's pray our father and our god we um, we are the weak we are the lame We are the cast-offs and the afflicted. But Lord, in Christ, you are drawing us in. You've thrown open wide the gates. And in Christ, you are lifting us up into this elevated city. Lord, use us, we pray, weak as we are. We could only ask this because this is exactly what you've told us. It's how you plan to work. So we trust that. We do ask that you would use us to extend, to expand, to proclaim this great city to a world who, who needs it. To those lost, lame, outcast, afflicted people who need to be gathered in, who need to see the glory of the Lord Jesus and all that he has done for lame, afflicted, outcasts like us. Help us, Lord. Give us the courage, the grace, and the strength to be part of your work of gathering them in for the glory of your name, the exaltation of our King, Jesus. Amen.